Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. It's been a busy weekend with Western leaders and former leaders marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the day that changed everything. Well, most former leaders. Donald Trump was busy presenting a boxing match and talking about the existence of aliens. The country also celebrated the extraordinary achievement of unseeded teenage migrant Emma Raducanu. Well, most of the country, Gavin Williamson sent a telegram congratulating Samuel L. Jackson for the win. It's an easy mistake. And it promises to be just as packed a week ahead. To help me pan for gold nuggets from News Gravel, I have with me bunker regular Arthur Snell. Morning, Arthur. Good morning. Arthur, in many ways, this week will mark a turning inwards again for the UK after loads of international stuff going on, because every bit of news seems to be pointing to the winter ahead and COVID. So we had Sajid Javid doing the rounds on Sunday, making quite firm announcements that there will be no vaccine passports for now, and that lockdown is not really an option for now. Yeah. And it looks like Javid is is basically doubling down on the herd immunity for kids plan. And yeah. uh, I know that Roz has talked about that on earlier editions of The Bunker. That that seems to be the idea for the winter, is, is hope that the kids get COVID and that the rest of the population gets by on its vaccinations. Mm. We had Christina Pargel on, the, on our sister podcast, on Oh God, What Now?, a few weeks ago, and she was saying that there's quite a danger with settling for basically making a, a virus endemic at such a high level, you know, with such a high infection pool, as it were, because there's more of a chance of variants. And with that, there's more of a chance of vaccine-resistant variants. There's also, we're expecting a decision on 12 to 15-year-olds from the four chief medical officers, aren't we, this week? Yes, and that's interesting because the JCVI, this is the panel of of global experts who've advised the government on vaccinations, said that it wasn't necessarily the right approach, but it looks quite possible that the government will sort of ignore their advice and push on with vaccinating teenagers anyway. As Mm -hmm. a parent of a teenager, I suppose I'm mildly pleased with that because from a selfish perspective that increases the resistance in my household unit but it's interesting because hitherto the government has been very proud of the fact that it's reliant on the scientific advice and now it's Mm. rather saying well this advice is is inconvenient so we're going to ignore it (laughs) it's looking for a second opinion let's say um there's also an announcement on boosters that's expected and the rumor around that is that it'll be 50s plus again like the vaccination starting from more more vulnerable groups and ages and working its way downwards is that coming this week i think it's quite possible and Again, you've got a sort of core constituency of the, of the government in the elderly that need to be kept happy. And clearly the argument, the, the, the ways in which older people have been very vulnerable to this disease, you can see the argument. There is, on the other hand, at the global level, there's a big discussion to be had about whether it makes more sense to boost the vaccination status of elderly 
British people mm. or try to spread vaccine doses around the world where there are literally billions of people who have got no chance at this stage of, of getting a COVID vaccine. And as I understand it, the key element research-wise that's missing is that we know protection dissipates slightly in terms of catching the thing, but we don't know that protection dissipates in terms of getting seriously ill from the thing. That data is, is not available yet. So we may be vaccinating people to prevent them from catching it when actually they're, they're in no more danger of getting seriously ill from it. There were a couple of polls out late last week and one over the weekend, which show the conservative popularity flagging quite a bit. The YouGov poll had them five points down, while Labour and the Lib Dems put on three. The Opinion one had them two points down, while Labour and the Lib Dems put on four. Do you think this is the the national insurance hike broken pledge that we're seeing? I think it might be more than that. Of course, listeners to this sort of podcast are the sorts of people who, like us, follow politics on a daily, maybe even hourly basis. But we always have to remind ourselves that most people very rarely think about politics and only when they're really forced to. So there's always a time lag between what appears to be a flagrantly uh, irresponsible, incompetent, maybe even immoral government and the wider population reacting to that. And it's become a bit of a sort of meme to say, well, it doesn't matter what Boris Johnson does, his poll lead will keep going up. Mm. But in general, that doesn't happen in politics. In general, politicians are punished by the public for their for their misdeeds one way or another. I'm not talking about, you know, personal private behaviour, but, you know, wider examples of their reliability, competence, and so on. So if you have a prime minister who says, I'm not going to put up taxes, and then decides to put up taxes in a way that specifically is bad for lower income people, and that same prime minister claims to be the sort of new tribune of the working classes, it doesn't seem terribly surprising that eventually this begins to change the the polling picture. And, And I think Clearly, we, st- we have to see if this is just a blip, it could be a bit of noise, or is this the start of a different trend? But ultimately, it would not be surprising, would it, if yeah. the government couldn't hold such a polling lead? I mean, I've always thought that popularity slips because of something the government has done, but that then consolidating that slip is up to the opposition. What can Starmer do to consolidate that at this stage? There was much consternation in the uh, weekend papers about him writing a very long essay setting out his mission statement, which is, to be honest, not unusual for Labour leaders. They all do it. So I don't know why everyone seems to have lost it about Starmer doing it. But I understand it's not a sort of populist grabbing headline thing. What can he do practically, do you think? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, one of the things to note, just to reinforce your point, is as you um, outlined in in this sort of change in the polling, 
it's not that Labour is shooting up, it's that the Tories might be shooting down and, and they're, they're splitting that lead with various opposition parties. Mm, mm. But to go back to the point, yeah, what can Starmer do? You keep hearing people say, well, he hasn't set out his policy platform. Now, that isn't really true, because if you can be bothered to look at the Labour Party press releases, they've got all kinds of policies that they're announcing, mm. albeit I don't think there's a very clear policy on social care. But I am reasonably sure that it doesn't matter whether or not Labour has a very specific policy platform at this stage of the game, because nobody knows when the next election is going to be. That doesn't seem to me to be the issue. I think what Starmer needs to do is actually to continue to do those interviews where he cries about his his um you know his mother's illness and I, that's not meant to be flippant i think i think most people in britain see him as a slightly wooden bit awkward guy the sort of guy that if you're in a room with him you wouldn't quite know what to say now that may not be true he may be fantastic company he may be very witty he may be a, a really great bloke to have around but it seems to me that's the issue at this stage it's the fundamental kind of likability sort of normal blokeability side of him that hasn't yet been communicated. And he needs to get over that. I think what's missing, there are policies here and there, but what's missing is a sort of the spine of a narrative arc going through them. If I were to tell someone in a noisy pub what a Labour government could do for them at the next election in three sentences, I couldn't. And so I, I, I think that's what needs to happen now. In many ways, the opposite of a long essay explaining what Labour's values are. I think what Labour needs is a story. I think what it needs is, you know, Tony Blair's was a, a the little card with five pledges. Yeah. And even that could be narrowed even further to a sort of time for change message or a yeah. things can only get better type of message. And I think that's what's missing from Labour at the moment. There is such a fear about upsetting this part of the party or that part of the party that everything has too much nuance in a way. What's needed is simplicity. What's needed is a message that I can knock on a door when I'm out leafleting and tell people in two sentences before they decide to close the door in my face why they should listen to more. On the the election, by the way, the the uh, dissolution and calling of Parliament bill reaches the committee stage this coming week, which, if passed, repeals the fixed-term Parliament Act. So is there a possibility of an early election, do you think? Well, I certainly think that they want to have it on their own terms. And if you look more broadly, this government is working very hard to tilt the electoral system in its favour. So you've got the election ID plan, which is, you know, just classic voter suppression of the sort of thing that works so well for Republicans in America. You've got the idea to prevent the Electoral Commission from being an independent body and turn it into an arm of the government. And then this is finally, you know, what, of course, British prime ministers were able to do for centuries up until the Cameron Lib Dem coalition you pick the date of the election when it suits you, when you think that the economy and other factors are going to be sort of blowing in your favour. I'm sure that means it would be a slightly earlier election than exactly five years after the last one. And 
unless, of course, there's, you know, there's some other crisis that we're still grappling with. But I think I'm not convinced that it means it'd be a particularly early one because I can't see that there's a clear advantage to the government in doing that. Mm. Whilst they, you know, they, they've had this poll lead, well, it might be a bit soft. And there's still loads of people who are very uncertain about their futures in, in the sort of furlough and other post-COVID situations. So I, I, I imagine... It, it's more about this wider thing of how you manage the, the overall electoral system in your favour. The Conservative slip in the polls, is that also very bad timing for unionists in general? We see the Scottish independence stuff is starting up again, and we see the DUP threatening to collapse Stormont. The issue is that the way the Conservatives have decided to be successful politically seems to me uh, is automatically something that leads to the breakup of the union. Now, that doesn't mean the breakup of the union is guaranteed by any means. But if you have effectively an English nationalist approach, you can't at the same time expect people in Scotland and people in Northern Ireland to feel warm and fuzzy about their relationship with you. And so they've got that contradiction they have to manage. Now, of course, there are there are very different factors in play. The DUP issue, I think, is a lot to do with the domestic politics of Northern Ireland, where you've got this other, even more sort of hardline unionist uh, party, traditional unionist voice shooting up in the polls. The DUP is desperately trying to re- reclaim the ground of its, its natural mm. constituency. Whereas in Scotland, clearly, it's a longer running... Uh, question which is at the heart of the whole SNP's raison d'etre and they have to continue to be able to push that question to sort of maintain their credibility I guess. The really interesting question with Scotland of course is that the referendum is in in the Westminster government's gift. I sense that they've concluded that the least worst option for them is just to keep saying no you know make it impossible for, for, for the Scottish government to hold a referendum but it's hard to know where it ends. Yes, and I think the the other thing that does that I have not heard expressed a lot is that in many ways it makes the Scottish referendum an issue for the next general election. It puts a lot of pressure on Labour to say, well, what would you do? Would you give them permission? Which is quite a difficult question for Labour. It is, and of course, this is if you're an extremely cynical English nationalist party, which I think that is what the Conservatives have become, mm-hmm. this is a very beneficial situation because yeah. if, the, if the elections fought on that question in Scotland, Labour's chance of recovery in Scotland are very limited. And that, of course, means that Labour's chance of winning government in Westminster are very limited. So again, it, but it comes back to that question. If, if you only care about winning the next election, then the future of your country is left in doubt. But it does seem that is a reasonable conclusion to draw from the way the Conservatives behave at the moment. In other news, Priti Patel has been caught having shifty meetings um, with no uh, officials present. And no, listeners, you're not hearing a spliced segment from two years ago. She's been at it again. So she met with conservative donors and executives from Dubai Airport and British Airways without any home office civil service staff present. This is her second time. Can she claim uh, again that she didn't quite understand how the rules worked? 
I'm sure she can. I'm sure she'll get away with it. She's got form on this. As you say, it's her second time. Everyone will remember her her unusual summer holiday in Israel, which involved um, you know meetings with prime ministers and, and other lobbying activities, which, I mean, everyone's got their own way of having a holiday, but it, it's relaxing, definitely not, yes. yeah, not the norm. <laughs> but then in the period after that, when she was, people will remember, she was the International Development Secretary. As a result of that, little frolic she she was fired she was she was a very enthusiastic lobbyist for all kinds of uh, private interests it's not out of character for her shall we say to be um, banging the drum for large large business people and I suppose if you've already clearly and flagrantly broken the ministerial code but haven't been sacked for it you that gives you a nice signal of um, of what you can continue to get away with um, she also has the Nationality and Borders Bill coming up um, relatively soon in Parliament. It's, in a weird way, is Emma Raducanu's glorious win over the weekend a bit of a PR problem for her? Does it give the opportunity to people to say, this is what migrants do for this country? You can't... Someone tweeted over the weekend, which I thought was very uh, sort of pithy and eloquent. You can support Emma Raducanu or push back boats, but you can't do both. I think if I was Pretty Patel, I'd say, watch me try. Um, I think... <laughs> that's I think so it, depressing. I know. I'm sorry. I'm, I, maybe it's a bit... Monday morning. Know, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> I, think, I think the problem is that, you know, for people such as you and me who uh, love the diversity and talent that migration brings to our country, we see a story like that. And not in a cynical or, or, you know, advantageous way. We, we think, well, that's a good example of what migration can do. Whereas I think if you are somebody who is pursuing this agenda that Priti Patel is pursuing, you just say, well, that's not, that's not important. That's just one person. You know, she's a one-off talent, which I'm sure she is, you know. So, and she could just have easily have been born of, of two parents who were both themselves born in Britain. So I think, I think the difficulty is that, the red meat of anti-migrant policies, including breaking maritime law and, you know, uh, threatening lives at sea, that plays very well, in, particularly in places like Essex, where uh, Priti Patel is an MP. Reshuffle. Will he or won't he? There are rumours that he might uh, start a, a reshuffle on Wednesday. Um, I think it was in, it's in the Telegraph this morning. So what we have to say is that there there has to be a mini reshuffle anyway because Suella Braverman is coming back from maternity leave in the next month. Some people, after the revelations this weekend, uh, they don't think Priti Patel is in trouble, but they're making a little bit of mischief about her. Do you think a, a reshuffle will be larger than expected or smaller than expected? It's difficult to know. Boris Johnson claims his favourite film scene is the bit in The Godfather where sort of simultaneously all of Corleone's uh, opponents are are dispatched in brutal style. And I think he likes to think of himself as that kind of person. But of course, he's actually indecisive and malleable and tends to be in, in the, under the influence of somebody who's a, around him, whether that might be Dominic Cummings or, or his current wife, who knows? I'm sure there will be a reshuffle, and I'm sure there'll be one or two surprises in there. And it doesn't 
it's hard to see what the advantage to the government of clinging on to someone like Gavin Williamson is, whereas I think the advantage of the government of clinging on to Priti Patel is reasonably obvious, even if it's, it's rather dispiriting to those of us on the sort of liberal side of the argument. Afghanistan has dropped down the news rankings. Any significant uh, developments there and anything expected in the next few days, Arthur? Well, as I'm sure listeners are aware, they've announced, they've finally announced a cabinet. The government has been formed. This is a government that is more hardline and uh, less broadly based than even uh, the sort of worst predictions could have foreseen. So it is, it's ob- it was always going to be a Taliban government, but the Taliban has different factions and different elements and so on. Yeah. But the, the ones that are there are, are some pretty hardcore people. As it happens, I think I've, I've read that 17 out of the 33 are actually on the United Nations sanctions list for for terrorist activities, uh, which gives you a feel for um, uh, sort of what kinds of people are in there. So what that means is that Western countries will have no reason to engage with this new government, uh, which will put a lot of power, therefore, in the hands of those sort of intermediary players, the likes of Qatar and Turkey and so on. There still remains the big humanitarian question. Are people going to be starving this winter in Afghanistan? And if that is a risk, then how is that going to be managed? How will people intermediate with this this ghastly government? Was there anything that stood out for you from the 9-11 20th anniversary memorials over the weekend, Arthur? There was a lot of clearly there are there are loads of those just devastating personal stories which which still for me personally anyway have the power to really kind of hit you the the, the just the awful terror of that day and and how it unfolded i think the other thing is again this has been said by lots of people so i, I don't think i'm saying anything particularly novel is that that was a moment when the world changed and the the very difficult disturbing and slightly chaotic world that we seem to be living in now does appear to have been born on that day. And I think that meant that it made it all the more poignant because we couldn't look back and say, well, that was a terrible day, but look how we've rebuilt. Mm. I think we look back and say that was a terrible day and look what a mess we've made of everything. I would tell listeners to go listen to the speech that George W. Bush made. I thought it was quietly quite aggressive about what's happened to the Republican Party. He talks a lot about white uh, uh, supremacists being radicalized and about the politics of division and about uh, subsuming everything into the culture wars. And I thought it was a a very timely and cleverly uh, put together attack on Trump. One fun item to finish with, A probe has been launched after a letter sent from the House of Commons was um, found to have been exposed to a significant amount of ecstasy. (laughs) So so the letter, which was on House of Commons' headed paper, was a reply to someone who is in the prison system at the moment, um, Mm. Coldingly in Surrey, and uh, the prison scanning equipment actually caught it. So there was so much ecstasy on it uh, and has now launched a, a formal investigation to find the partying parliamentarian. Um, will you be writing to your MP uh, more often, Arthur? 
Yeah, this is a wonderful story, isn't it? It reminds me of that <laughs> sort of urban myth that every £20 note in London was laced with cocaine. You didn't even need to buy cocaine. You just roll up your banknote and it was already there. So is every every sheet of note paper in the House of Commons is, is laced with ecstasy. I've got to say, if imagine... If that's what they're like on ecstasy, imagine what they'd be like if they weren't on it. Imagine how dull that place would be. (laughs) Um, And that's the end of this edition of Start Your Week. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, we hope you're enjoying our new Saturday Culture Bunker, covering music, TV, film and all pop culture. I'm making my presenting debut this coming Saturday, so I hope to see you then. If you found this podcast or the family of podcasts useful, then you can help us out and spread the word. Why not forward the link of this episode to three friends you think might enjoy it? It's really easy. There's a share button in every app and nothing wins people over like a personal recommendation. And if you want to take the relationship to the next level, there's always our Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and find out how to get the show early and without ads and lots of extras too. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily Start Your Week was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Arthur Snell. The assistant producer was Jan Sofronievich and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>